that they say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it. You know, uh, no future bliss can account for 9-11 or the suffering that people feel, the tragedies of losing life and so forth, not knowing that, and this is the best part, that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. It works backwards, and you see everything differently. And that is kind of the hope of, of the Christian life, and and that got me thinking in the direction forward that we need to nurture hope forward. But I want to take you to the most unlikely place to nurture hope, and that is the concept of judgment. Judgment. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, okay, it's already kind of heavy. This is 9-11, 10 years later, and you're going to talk about judgment. In what way, shape, or form is that positive or nurturing of hope? Because most of us, when we think of the concept of judgment, we hear the word judgment, we almost ha- all have doom, gloom. We don't want to talk about it, think about it, because it's a negative concept. And that's, for the longest time, has been my conception of the word judgment and the concept of judgment until I ran into, or um, it ran into me, Psalm 96. Psalm 96 kind of made me stop and go, wait a second, that's not how judgment is viewed in the Bible. So there's this, this is a, this is a text that um, was important enough that I committed to memory and I, every other week or so, week or every other week I meditate on it, not to use it as a sermon necessarily, but because it feeds my soul and because it reminds me of something that I didn't know before and gives me a new understanding and an appreciation for the importance of how judgment feeds hope. So here's the, here's the, the text, and I pick it up in the, in the middle, beginning in verse 10, where the psalmist writes, he says, say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established, it shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. The psalm is such an uplifting psalm, and yet in the middle of it, it talks about judgment. I like the first part of that because it tells God's people, listen, you need to tell and affirm and reaffirm that God reigns, that he reigns despite how it feels and despite what you read in the newspapers, despite how it seems sometimes, he reigns. He he reigns over kings and he reigns over governments of all times and places. He reigns over over fires. He reigns over floods. He reigns over victory and defeat and, and tragedy and success, life and death. He reigns over it all. There's nothing outside of his dominion. And as such, because he is the caretaker and he is the king and he is the creator, he promises that he will come and judge the people. Three times, you notice, it says he will judge. Judge, He will judge the peoples with equity. He will judge the earth or comes to judge the earth. Uh, He judges the world in righteousness. Those simple statements, those three times, that tells us this is a psalm that focuses on God's coming judgment. Is coming judgment, but you notice the words that accompany those words, judge, uh, tells us that God's judgment consists of at least two things. One, it is universal in scope. That is, it's going to judge the world, earth, and peoples. It's universal. There's nothing outside of it. And he will judge it with equity, even-handed, perfectly, 
in a way that satisfies in the end. Perfect. Now that part you're probably fairly familiar with, but what's intriguing about the psalm is its upbeat note that as a result of God's promise coming to judge the earth with equity, you see all these like petitions for creation itself to rejoice. You know, let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. You know, let the oceans just sing with delight and, and let, the, let the fields be filled with joy and, and uh, every tree of the forest is going to sing for joy. It's, it calls for an explosion of praise on the part of creation. That's why it struck me. It's like my concept of judgment is so negative, and yet everything's rejoicing as a result of God coming to judge the peoples with equity. You see how this psalm would just kind of blow your categories and the negative understanding of what judgment is? And then the first part of the psalm is a call for all the redeemed, all those who trust in the Lord to likewise join this chorus of praise. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. And it goes on and on and on. That a psalm that focuses on the coming judgment of the peoples with equity solicits from creation and from the redeemed nothing but praise and joy. means that there's something to judgment that we perhaps don't understand. That there's some aspect of wonder and desire the light that comes with this concept of judgment. The question, what is it? How can we as God's people looking at judgment rejoice and give thanks and praise and write songs? I think at its heart, to answer that simply, is to understand that God's coming justice and judgment is an expression of his deep love. A deep love for his own namesake, his deep love for his people, and a deep love for his creation. We tend to think of God's judgment and salvation as mutually exclusive or opposites, polar opposites, like they can't dwell together in the same place, you know, matter, antimatter, that kind of stuff, positive, negative. Um, but that's not the case. We tend to think of God's justice and his love as somehow mutually incompatible as if they can't dwell in the same place when in fact they're part of the same. In fact, God judges because he loves. It's out of his deep heart of love for his people that he promises that he will right all the wrongs. And seen in that dimension, you can understand a little bit more why the heavens are being glad and the, and, the, and the earth is rejoicing and so forth because there's this positive wonder to it. There's this calming Joy that takes place as a result of knowing that God is going to right the wrongs because he loves his people. Now you might think, well, I'm not feeling it. I'm not feeling it, Dan. I got the words. But for me, what's been helpful is to reflect on, on how injustice produces a sense of debt in human experience. Uh, I, I listen to words a lot. I just, I'm fascinated by language. And so sometimes when I'm saying something, I'll catch myself and look at how I'm saying it, and it usually says something about my heart. Or I listen to other people, and the language they use and the vocabulary oftentimes says something about their heart. Have you ever stopped and recognized the fact that when we offend each other and injure each other, when we go about reconciling, we almost always use debt terminology? Like, you owe him an apology. 
or you owe me an apology. That word owe is a, it's like there's a debt that's formed, a sense of inner entitlement, like something has been taken away that, that you need to give back. Because that is, that is a debt-producing thing. That's what injustice, what sin does, is it, it robs people. And I'm not talking mere physical robbing here. It's just robbing is basically diminishing the value or importance of somebody by doing something wrong. It takes away from their dignity. It takes away from their honor. And in that way, you, we have robbed each other. And a debt is formed. A debt that is felt. And not just in an abstract way, but an emotional way, like we feel it. So here's a scenario. I'll keep it, this one light. By the way, I told John Barry, this message is kind of like a smiley face. Starts a little up, it goes way down, then comes back up at the end. This is on the downward side, um, but on the lighter side. Um, a couple get married, don't have any kids, they move into their first apartment. And um, the husband's very favorite flavor of pie is blueberry pie. And um, he buys a piece from Marie Callender's, she just wants to save it. Wife, you know, doesn't know, maybe she does, I don't know. And he comes home and he puts it in the fridge and, and thinking to himself, I'm going to save this for a perfect occasion when I can sit down in silence and just enjoy it. So the day comes and he decides, ah, I can't wait to get home. I'm just going to eat that pie. He even fascinates at his desk about just sliding that fork in through that blueberry filling and just the flaky crust and just dissolving in his mouth, kind of like a pre-explosion uh, of hedonistic wonder and and he, he gets home and he opens the refrigerator door and, and uh, with a sense of anticipation, he's getting closer and closer. This guy obviously worships food. And, uh, and he looks in there and it's gone. Nobody's broken into the house. There's only one other possible person who could have taken it. So he says to his wife, he says, where's the piece of blueberry pie? And she says, what piece of blueberry pie? There's no piece of blueberry pie. And he's like, uh, I know there was a piece of blueberry pie because I put it there. And nobody else has been in the house but you and me, so you ate the blueberry pie. At which she says, no, I didn't eat the blueberry pie. First you accused me of stealing, now you're accusing me of lying. And a fight ensues. He's angry because she ate the pie and then compounded it by lying about the pie. She, of course, denies the whole thing. Well, if that was in your house, how would you, if it was your piece of pie, feel? If she wasn't willing to apologize and make some form of restitution, well, you'd feel like there was this, this unresolved lack of closure and anger. It's really hard to reconcile with somebody if there's not some sense of making that right. So you feel like there's this kind of outstanding debt out there. Like, until you acknowledge it, we're going to have some problems. But then how does it feel? And you put this in whatever kind of little scenario goes on in your house wrenches, whatever. And um, that was on, I took my dad's wrenches all the time. I always got mad at me. And, um, but how does it feel when you as the offended party, in this case, the wife comes and, and in tears she says, I'm sorry. I did take the pie and I'm sorry for, I'm sorry for lying about it. And I bought you a new piece. How, how does the person who is offended now feel because that, that 
that sense of debt has been repaid. Well, now there's closure, and there's, there's a sense of resolution. It's like you can be one heart again, and there's a, there's a sense that the wrong has been made right, and you can go back on your merry way. That, by the way, is a completely fictitious story, not true of anybody that I know of. <laughs> I know some of you, and I know that's not true. You've had a piece of pie stolen once or twice in your life. <laughs> the point is that we feel it. There is a sense of indebtedness to this thing called injustice. Now, let's go down a little deeper. And What happens when that, that injustice cannot be repaid? How does, one, how does one have a sense of resolve and closure to physical or, or sexual abuse or, or adultery? You know that a woman has been robbed of her sense of self-worth and the joy of trust? It's really difficult to get that back. Or in the case like an extreme case of murder. Now, murder is robbing a man of his life, but not just a man, but a community of a friend or a, or a father, a son, a daughter, mother. Everybody feels the debt. They feel the loss. And it's deeply painful. And you can't repay it. How does a person feel that sense of closure and, and resolution like everything's right again? Even in the case, as I've said, extreme case of murder, if the murderer is caught and he is convicted and he is put to death by lethal injection, there still is no resolve because you still don't get the life back. I was reading this story this last week and it just kind of broke me. Um, many of you will remember the, the freeway killer 70s, 80s, and 90s, a man by the name of William Bonin was his name. And um, gosh, you read about what he did, and it's absolutely horrific. By the time they actually caught this man, he had confessed to raping, torturing, killing 21 boys and young men before he was finally caught. One of those boys that he picked up at a bus station and later killed was the son of a woman by the name of Sandra Miller. Now, Sandra Miller obviously lost the life of her son and had to wait years before he was executed. I mean, he was sentenced to lethal ex uh, injection at San Quentin, 1996. This is what she said prior to them executing him. She said, I expect to weep tears of joy at seeing him go and tears of sadness for my son. I absolutely want to finalize this pain. I, I can't imagine this, but she wants finality. She wants resolution. She wants closure. And she's hoping that witnessing this will do it. Well, in February of 1996, they paraded these 50 people, family members who had lost people, into the little glass room, and they watched. And this is what she said immediately after. She said, I said to the warden, could you give me his body so I could kill him again? That f desire for finality regarding the pain in the first statement, she realized when she actually saw it, it just didn't do it. 
didn't fill the void. Two years later, she talked to the press, and this is what she said. She says, it doesn't bring closure. I hate that word. They should have never invented it. It's, impossible. it's an impossible thing. Nothing can bring closure to the death of a child. Now, here's someone who's experienced a deep sense of injustice, painful, robbed of a life of her son and his future, and potentially grandchildren, on and on and on. And that sense of injustice caused so much pain that later she had confessed that it um, led her to drink. She became an alcoholic. She had two heart attacks, fell into deep depression, and attempted to take her life twice. That, that's, that's, what, that's what injustice does to the, to the human soul. What do we do with that? What do, you, what, do you, what do you do with the lack of closure, the lack of finality? You can deny it, I suppose. You can sing with Don Henley about forgiveness, but there's still no satisfaction. Now let's add to that a, a num- number of 2,000 plus. You know, families who just still ache to this day from the people who were senselessly killed, not in combat, seeing the pictures on the, on the magazine racks of, of little girls who were born after 9-11 who never knew their father, mother. Gosh, just imagine the the accumulation of debt felt by vast populations. Then you add to that what our military forces have had to face, not just in terms of loss of life, but even just the enduring, the haunts of war. And then the families that are left behind by people who are taken and the hollowness. There's just like this never-ending, ever-increasing abyss of injustice and the pain that it causes and a lack of complete resolution. Is there any closure at all? I'll tell you, people end up in counseling, some deep therapy, because they don't know what to do with this. Because the human heart wants closure. It seeks justice. It's as if the ground of human experience says we need resolve. We need closure. We need the strings to be tied back up again. We need the the fabric that has been torn in humanity to be sewn perfect again. And what I just described, that feeling, what it does, see, it's not just a legal, debt is not just a legal thing, and it's an emotional, psychological thing, too, that we feel deep in our hearts, in the marrow of human experience and... um, And most everyone in this room, if you've lived long enough, there's probably something you can point to in your life that still is hanging out there. Some unresolved anger about somebody who hurt you. It may have been a big thing, may have been a small thing. But what are we supposed to do with that? How are we supposed to respond? Well, it's in light of that that I I think that, that human cry and longing for resolve, closure, for someone big enough and strong enough, and it's certainly bigger than Uncle Sam or or our president, to put Humpty Dumpty back together again. And there's only one person who can do that. So with that kind of debt explained 
and the injustice and the scars and the pain that injustice creates in people like you and like me. Now listen again to the words of Psalm 96, where God says to his people, say among the nation, the Lord reigns. The world is established, shall never be moved. He will judge the earth with equity. Therefore, you know, let the heavens be glad, let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall every tree of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes basically to make right what has been wronged. To bring the closure and to bring the resolution that the deep human broken spirit longs for. That's, I believe, what's behind the sing to the Lord a new song, sing to the Lord all the earth. He will make right what was wrong. Heaven will work backwards and make glory out of agony. Now, in the New Testament, we're told that that judgment has been given to God's Son. That He is remarkably the one who satisfies justice at the end. He satisfies justice in two ways and at two different times. He satisfies justice because he loves us as the judged and the judge. The judged and the judge. Because there's another side to the equation the part we almost always gloom and doom about. Because just as many bear the pain of injustice, and what am I going to do with this? How am I going to live and move on and forgive and love people in light in spite of it? There's the other side of the equation. That is, if we take a real close look at our own souls, we realize that we cause injustice and pain with our words and our actions, our neglect all the time. A parent hasn't lost their temper with their child and realized, man, that was a moment where I broke. But you can't take back the words. There are times when we just treat each other with a sense of malice. and We respond to each other not with kind words, with, with corrupting words that, that corrode the soul rather than build up. I do. Sometimes I look into my soul and I realize, wow, there's some ugly stuff in there. What am I going to do with that? Now it's not the problem with someone else's guilt. Now it's a problem with my own. It's a double, double-edged sword. How do I deal with the injustice committed against me? But then if one really takes a close look at their soul, you realize there's so much guilt and shame in my own life when I take a close look. What am I going to do with that? That too ends people in years and years of counseling and therapy. What do I do with this thing called guilt? Do I deny it? Do I pretend it doesn't exist? Do I justify the way I live so that it doesn't seem so bad? Those are options, but they, they're just, they're just band-aids. And that's, that's the wonder and the beauty of the love of God that comes to us in judgment. Because, because Jesus is both judged and judge. That he comes to, to satisfy justice by being abandoned and forsaken in our place. And you know the gospel. It's the gospel. You know it, but do we believe it? And do we recognize that in him and by faith in him, the guilt has been forever removed. The shame has been taken away. 
that the sins that were once scarlet in our lives are now white as snow in him. That, that he really did, in a very real, powerful, and complete way, stagger under the weight of the sin of all of his people, that the Lord did lay on him the iniquity of us all. He took it, bore it, and satisfied it. And to live in that reality and know that the guilt is not mine, he, it was his. And to live in that light. That's how the Christian's supposed to deal with the feeling of guilt. So that any sin that we confess to the Lord or ask forgiveness for after coming to Christ, we know and acknowledge and praise God for the fact that it's already been ultimately forgiven at the cross. My forgiveness is not contingent upon me keeping my confession up all the time. It's just a restoration of my fellowship and my fragile soul. Reconnecting to my Father is what confession does. But then to realize as we relate to each other, the Christian family, the secret to getting along isn't just getting along. It's seeing each other in light of the cross. We're going to hurt each other. I'm certainly not perfected yet. Kids will tell you that. You're not perfected yet. We'll neglect each other. We'll say things sometimes out of anger. We'll misunderstand each other, hold grudges. How are we supposed to deal with that? Well, of course, we're supposed to make restitution, apologize, ask forgiveness. But ultimately, we do so recognizing, you know, God forgave your debt. I can't hold that against you, what he has forgiven you of. It becomes a means of relationship as well as our understanding of of God. And therein lies our release from guilt. But that comes because Christ was judged. He came as judged. That's the good news. Second part's also good news, that he's going to come again as The judge. In the words of Paul, he will judge the living and the dead, that heaven and earth will flee from his presence, that the sea will give up its dead, and all will stand before him. And this time, he will not be the slain lamb, he will be the roaring lion, as we just just sang about. And he will resolve, finally and completely, to the satisfaction of, and to the joy of all God's people. We trust that on that day, now this is a matter of faith, we trust that on that day, all of the injustices which we feel the pain of, we trust that on that day, he will take all the wrongs and make them right to the satisfaction of God's people. There won't be this lingering lack of closure Complete closure, like, yes. Like the major chord at the end of a long funeral dirge. It just feels perfect. Or after a dark night, the sun coming up and you're feeling the warmth, it will be perfect and satisfying. That every pain caused by injustice, he will compensate perfectly to the satisfaction of his people. Not a single complaint, unlike Sandra Miller, who felt no closure There will be complete closure on the part of God's people saying, yes, Lord, you are righteous and just. And then then the heavens will sing and the earth will rejoice and the trees and the oceans because he will bring resolve. That he will, as the Bible says, turn mourning into dancing. And he will roll back heaven over our agonies and show them to be glories. And he will convert our sadness into satisfaction and our pain into pleasure as he personally and carefully and 
lovingly wipes every tear from our eyes as the judge who's coming to judge the peoples with equity. He does it because he loves his people. And he promises that to those who trust in him. That's the secret, I think, behind why we're called to praise and rejoice and look toward, toward the judgment with a sense of wonder. That the final chord is going to be sounded. And the lack of resolution that many of us feel in this room about things, big, small, 9-11, or personal, will find their full and complete satisfying answer. And that's the hope in which we live. He's going to take care of it. The real like question, and it's always the bottom line question, is will we trust it? Just like we have to trust God that he's actually forgiven our sins, so we have to trust that he will take care of the sins of others. We trust him as the one who provided for our judgment in Jesus, and we also trust him that he will resolve the injustices that still haven't been resolved. And he will do so perfectly. It's a matter of faith and trust. It always is, isn't it? Will I trust him? Will I hear his words that say, be still and know that I am God and I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress and he will make it right. So I, I asked the question, knowing that there's so many people who are hurting, carrying stuff around, you know, will, will you, instead of holding it in, whether it be the guilt of your failures or the hurt of the injustices of others committed against you, will you lift it up and, and say, Father, I trust that vengeance is yours? Because only as we surrender it in faith, and sometimes it's a daily activity, will we find the strength to move on, to forgive, to love our enemies, to rediscover the joy of our salvation. I'll tell you, what we shouldn't do is, is allow our anger to become bitterness and our bitterness hatred. And watch our souls shrivel and watch the joy of our salvation sucked out of us. It's basically... Do I trust you that your judgment will resolve everything to your glory and the satisfaction of my soul? There's freedom in that. And I pray that you hear his voice this morning because that's what he's saying. I am so big and I'm so much in love with you that I am going to take care of it. Just trust me with it. The end is coming. The final resounding chord is coming. And then, as the psalmist says, this place is going to explode with a sense of joy and jubilation because God has shown himself to be perfect and satisfying in his justice toward us in love. Do you trust him? Are you willing to trust him? He's asking you to give it up and trust. Stop holding on to it. Let me pray for us. Father, I am um, mindful that there are pains in this room and, and around the world that, that far exceed my own limited experience in life, some of which can't even really be expressed. And I just pray for individuals in that place that you would, by your Holy Spirit and by your truth and by the help of godly people, just allow them to live in the freedom of faith, faith that you have covered sin and faith that you will one day right sin. And that, uh, Lord, you would restore a measure of joy and, and, um, and wonder that you're the God and the only one who can put it back together again. 
and right the wrongs. You're the only one who can roll back heaven so that our agonies can be seen as glories. So we pray for that deliverance this morning and just thank you, Lord, that you're our refuge and our strength, our very present help in time of trouble. That though the, the, the earth gives way and the, the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters rage and foam and though the mountains tremble at their foaming, we will not fear. But we will be still and know that you are God and that you will right all things. Jesus, holy, beloved, and supreme name we pray. Amen.